Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your guest host, Manjulika Das, and I'm the Membership and Marketing Coordinator at SBN, the Sustainable Business Network of Massachusetts. Since its founding over 30 years ago, SBN's mission has been to create local green and fair economies. Every year, we host an annual conference to promote this mission, and on June 4th, with the help of the Common Good Collective, our 31st annual conference was held virtually. We were hoping to inspire collaborative action, which will contribute to developing an economy that is local, green, and fair. Over the coming weeks, presentations and discussions from the conference will be featured here on the Common Good Podcast. The first keynote presentation we'd like to feature is from Shigun Idowu. Shigun is the executive director of BECMA, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. Shigun discusses Black Wall Street, Juneteenth, and asks if we will rest in these ruins. After Shigun speaks, you'll hear a response from Lori Hamill, the executive director of the Sustainable Business Network of Massachusetts. Here's Shigun. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Shigun Idowu. I have the uh, personal privilege of being able to serve as the president and CEO of BECMA, uh, which actually is right behind me, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. I've uh, been in this role since November of 2018, and it's been quite an honor to be able to serve alongside partners like Rosario at Amplify, which is one of our strongest uh, partners, knowing that uh, issues are not just impacting the Black community or the Latinx community alone, but that we have much more shared experiences than not. And so working together to eliminate those barriers um, and partners like Sustainable, uh, like SBN, uh, and Lori, who actually is one of our first members. Uh, as soon as BECMA was founded six years ago, Lori was one of the first to sign up as a member of the organization, believing and trusting in the mission uh, to not just reduce the racial wealth gap, but to eliminate it altogether. Um, and so since then, we've been lockstep uh, and et eternal brother organizations, I would say, in, in making sure that, again, we are addressing the issues impacting um, our communities. Uh, I, I was told I have 20 minutes, but um, uh, I'm not going to do that to you. I was I was advised many, many years ago that uh, the secret to a great speech is to have a good beginning and a good ending, and then to have the two as close together as possible. So I plan on delivering the greatest speech you ever heard. And actually, uh, it's it's going to be easy for me to do that because I have uh, I've shortened my comments, had some ideas in my head about what to share with you uh, this morning, and all of that changed in the last uh, 24 hours as I've been reflecting on the events of this uh, last week and events to come later on this month. And what I mean is, you know, on Monday, many of us celebrated or, or commemorated uh, two Memorial Days. One was to honor those uh, women and men who donned the American flag in uniform and went overseas or even fought here at home to protect the ideals of freedom, the notions of the pursuit of happiness and dreams of equality here in the nation, especially that, that we've espoused since our founding. The other Memorial Day that many of our communities commemorated was the acknowledgement of the 300 Black women, men, and children who lost their lives and the 10,000 who lost their livelihoods 
because they sought to actualize those uh, notions and ideals and those dreams of equality, the pursuit of happiness and freedom in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the Greenwood neighborhood, otherwise known as Black Wall Street. I've been reading a lot of the in-depth accounts in various news sources that all of us have access to and have probably read ourselves. Uh, Certainly in my community, Black Wall Street has been talked about for a very long time. I know it's been refreshing and important for the Greenwood neighborhood itself that so many more people know about what transpired there uh, as Tulsa and the nation really worked together to cover up what took place there in 1921. And as I've been reading these accounts, there's this lingering question that I've been dragging with me all week, and I apologize for dropping it on your laps. And we may not find the answer today, but I've been um, thinking about this question of shall we rest in these ruins? And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So two weeks from tomorrow, many, many African Americans are going to be celebrating something called Juneteenth. And for those of you who may not know what that is, uh, Juneteenth or June 19th is uh, when uh, many of the enslaved uh, Africans and African Americans in Galveston, Texas, were finally told by a Union general that Robert Lee and the Confederacy collapsed on April 15th, 1865 and surrendered. The practice of slavery had ceased and that the Union had won the war. It's important to know that between April and June, rebels in Texas were still fighting. Slave owners were still acting as if everything was uh, the same, that everything was normal. And it wasn't until that Union general showed up that folks learned that everything had changed uh, in this country. Supposedly, June 19th became the day that the last vestige of slavery uh, was wiped out and that people learned of their freedom. And shortly after that, the nation gave us important policies. The 13th Amendment said that human beings who God had not intended to be property were free and would never be enslaved again. The 14th Amendment made people who had built the nation uh, citizens. And the 15th Amendment gave this same group of people, although really only half of them, because women were not given the right to vote uh, via the 15th Amendment. But the 15th Amendment said that these people who were not people and who were not citizens now get to select who uh, the leaders of their communities and their cities and their states and their country should be. And then the nation rested. We believed that we had achieved something monumental. The nation accepted at face value that these policies would bring about the freedom and the pursuit of happiness and the equality that we had espoused since the founding of the nation. And because of that, it opened the door for Jim Crow and the idea uh, or the decisions that uh, separate really was equal. In the midst of this, all of these formerly enslaved peoples began to rebuild their own communities, uh, but by themselves. And so five decades later in the 1920s, we see the burgeoning of all of these Black Wall Streets, not just in Tulsa, but throughout South Carolina and North Carolina, Alabama. I won't repeat the story of what happened in Tulsa. I think many of us know what happened. And it wasn't just in Tulsa that something like this happened, but jealousy and racism still abounded. And a neighborhood where there were hundreds of businesses, and despite all of the challenges and uh, setbacks and policies in place to keep uh, people oppressed, this neighborhood neighborhood was able to thrive despite all of that. And based on a false story, it was burned down. What took 
decades to build up was destroyed in less than 48 hours between May 30th uh, and June 1st of 1921. We all reflect on the destruction of Greenwood. And of course, it was a terrible incident and another in a long line of racist massacres here in the nation. But I think of some of the business owners who, despite the destruction of their community, returned in order to rebuild. There was a story of a gentleman named C.L. Netherland who owned a barbershop in Greenwood. And it was actually one of the most successful, more successful businesses in the area. Literally a day after all of this uh, took place, he bought himself a chair, a razor and a strap and went over to the, the ruins of his barbershop, set up his own shop and began to start get, doing haircuts again and trying to rebuild his business. I think of, uh, there was a church called Mount Zion Baptist Church that had one of the largest structures in the neighborhood. It was the largest church in the area with hundreds of congregants. And in fact, they, they had spent their last coins building this marvelous sanctuary. And it was only two months before Black Wall Street was burned down that they opened up the sanctuary to be able to worship and all of that. And it was burned down. And rather than declaring bankruptcy, uh, all of uh, these uh, congregants decided to save up and pool their money again to rebuild the sanctuary. And it took them 21 years to repay that debt, but they were committed to rebuilding in those ruins. Just like in Galveston and so many other communities across the country, they were forced to do this rebuilding themselves. And at the same time they were rebuilding, there were policies put in place to ensure that they could not get the insurance needed to rebuild their homes and their businesses. There were policies put in place to ensure that property owners could not rebuild on their own land. And later on, as Greenwood did begin to clean up and rebuild itself, urban renewal saw to its uh, its ending as a highway was put right in the middle of the community and the community became depressed and it is where it is today. And we've seen so much violence happen, not just against Greenwood, but against so many Black and Brown communities across our country who have experienced their own massacres, maybe not in the violence that we saw happen in Greenwood, but through these policies and practices that continue to keep them depressed to this day. And that's exactly where we are today. You know, since then, as I mentioned, our businesses have faced their own massacres. And in fact, uh, Amplify and, and Beckmar are part of a larger coalition called the Coalition for an Equitable Economy that has put out several reports now showing how we continue to face barriers, not just to capital, but also to being able to grow and to contracts and opportunities to sustain our businesses and ensure the collective growth of our economy. This was before COVID, and COVID has further exacerbated the issues that were impacting our communities. In fact, uh, when I was able to present um, at the last conference uh, last June in partnership with Amoeba, we at that time were conducting a survey, Amplify and, and Beckma and many other organizations via Mass Inc. That survey wound up showing us in July that 11% of Black businesses and 18% of all minority-owned businesses had closed their doors for good. That was in July of last year. We know that many, many more have closed their doors since then, being hit by the winter months and even uh, coming into 2021, where many are still looking for resources to help stem the tide and grow their business. Particularly for the Black community, this is alarming because 50% of our businesses, according to McKinsey, fall into low growth industries. Business I mentioned before, barbershops or hair care, personal care, restaurants, retail, these industries, many of us are in. Part of it is the legacy of segregation. We weren't allowed to go to white-owned restaurants or barbershops or hair salons. And so we started our own and that's how we began, how our businesses began to thrive. But today, many of our businesses, because they're in these industries, for the next 10 years, 
according to another McKinsey report, are going to face really tough hurdles in getting to what was considered normal before the pandemic. And so the effort on our part is uh, to help our businesses not only help them grow in these industries, but help them transition to other industries like the green economy, cannabis, tech, etc., which uh, have a much healthier future and also are industries that are having a positive impact on our community. The problem, though, as I mentioned earlier about resting in the ruins, not so much about being lethargic and kind of giving up hope, but rather accepting incremental changes as monumental achievements, particularly here in Massachusetts, what we are working, us and Amplify and SBN are working to do is to ensure that we are not blinded by the fact that apparently COVID is over. I don't know if you knew that, but now we've reopened at 100%, despite the fact that many of our communities are not fully vaccinated. But there is a gloss over our eyes where now that we are reopened, the belief is that this means that our businesses will begin to thrive now that we can let many more people into our businesses. But we know that there were issues our businesses were facing before the pandemic that have not been fully addressed. And so what I'll just leave with is that, you know, I know that to this question, shall we rest in these ruins? All of you already have your answer to that. The answer is no. All of you have been working to ensure that, uh, in fact, you probably haven't slept a a good night's sleep in the last uh, 14 months because your work has been to ensure that our business community is able to thrive. But our work must be toward creating a new normal. We need to make sure that we don't fall back into this lull of believing that now that COVID has begun to recede and we're able to see our friends and family again and in restaurants and in parks and outside and not have to wear masks, that that means that everything is over and we can go back to what we were doing before. We must recommit ourselves to the idea that this is not what we want to do, that normal wasn't working for virtually anybody. And that if we want to have healthy and strong and vibrant communities, we must keep working together to create that new normal. Uh, How BECMA is doing that is through, uh, you know, I came in while Rosario was talking about the policy work that Amplify is doing. And similar to that, BECMA continues to push for policies and practices that will absolutely remove all barriers to capital and to contracts and to technical assistance to ensure that our businesses are able to fully participate in the economy. Because if there's one thing that we know at BECMA, it's that the development of some communities cannot coexist with the underdevelopment of others. That if the Black economy is depressed, the entire economy is depressed. At at the end of the day, uh, the census tells us that there are 2,000 Black employer-based firms here in Massachusetts that employ 17,000 people and generate a revenue of $1.9 billion, all of which comes back into the Massachusetts economy. Just think, if we were to remove these barriers, those 23,000 sole proprietor Black businesses would be able to then become their own employer-based firms and help reduce the unemployment gap and ensure that we're connecting people to good-paying jobs with great benefits and uh, that contribute to their communities. So what I'll just say is, uh, as an organization, we are pushing for something called a public bank. That is our biggest policy initiative that we're pushing for this year in the legislature. A public bank similar to that in North Dakota would not take deposits from Massachusetts residents, but would be accessible to all Massachusetts residents to help them in getting a mortgage, to starting a business or investing in, in growing their business, and would have significant underwriting practices that are different than commercial 
racial banks, ensuring that we're prioritizing communities of color and women and veterans and those in the LGBT community. And we're also pushing to ensure that these federal dollars uh, that have come to Massachusetts, there's five, uh, $5.3 billion sitting in an account somewhere. I actually, I did not know that you could wire $5.3 billion. Uh, I have my wiring information if they ever want to do that uh, over here. But ensuring that that money is spent in a way that invests deeply in communities of color and does not do what we would normally do with those dollars, but rather rethinks and repurposes that investment to ensure that we're not just making those investments for the today, but rather uh, making long-term investments uh, for tomorrow. And finally, it's important that we support SBN and groups like the Black Business Network that's connected to SBN, um, as well as supporting Amplify and all of their policy initiatives and our shared work to ensure that more grants are being made available to our businesses and that we are pushing the venture community to open up their wallets to our businesses as well, knowing that less than 1% of our businesses are getting investment to grow and thrive, invest in their ideas. So finally, I'll just say there's one thing my grandfather told me almost a decade ago now, and it's that we should not confuse motion with progress. And so if there's anything I leave with all of you this uh, this morning, it's, it's similar to that, that in all that we're doing and working together to bring about a new tomorrow and a new normal, we should not confuse motion with progress. We should not be content with incremental change, but rather need to work collectively to bring about systemic change for the betterment of all of our communities. We should not confuse motion with progress. We should not be content with incremental change, but rather need to work collectively to bring about systemic change for the betterment of all of our communities. Take a breath and let Shagun's words sink in. Now, you'll hear a response from Lori Hamill, the Executive Director of the Sustainable Business Network of Massachusetts. I was brought up in a white family, in a basically white community, its very essence in the 50s was very, very racist. The language, the derogatory terms used toward people of color were just rampant. And my family happened to be a consciously anti-racist family. My parents and my sisters and brothers, myself, were always in a situation, we were always doing what we could to promote, at the time we called civil rights, because we were part of the civil rights movement back when I was in junior high school back in the 50s. So I've been, I've been working for what we call civil rights for racial equity, eliminating prejudice and discrimination all of my life since I was about 12 years old. What's happened ever since the murder of George Floyd happened is that there's been an unbelievably large uptick every single day of particularly white people seeing how we behave and how we're a part of a system that is creating unbelievable pain and has created unbelievable pain for black people and people of color forever in our nation. And so we've worked with one of the members of SBN's board, Sustainable Business Network's board, around a program called the Racial Equity Challenge. That's been a life-changing challenge for me personally and for many people in my life because I've spent so much time looking at how I think, how I respond, how I participate in white supremacy and in institutional racism. So hearing Shagoon talk in the way he did, as every, every time I've heard him speak, it's always so profound because he's so crystal clear about what needs to be done. And he is never afraid, at least he doesn't show it if he is, he, he's totally bold about stating the truth of what's going on. And the truth of what's going on is that this society is based on white supremacy, is so unfair and unjust, and has been that way for hundreds of years. 
And we, as a community, as a nation, as a world, and particularly those of us who are white, who are benefiting in many ways from this white supremacy and this, this racism, we need to do what we can to step up and do significant things that are going to change the world to make it better. Now, SBN, Sustainable Business Network in Massachusetts, has been working very closely together with many, many people in our community to work for fairness and equity in every aspect of our economy. And as a result, our board of directors has six people on the board of directors, four of whom are people of color and three of whom are black people. And that, that's a result of the fact that we've been working around this topic with people and organizations throughout the Massachusetts, New England and national area to do what we can to make a more fair and just economy and culture. And hearing Shagoon talk, he makes it so clear, so absolutely essential that we don't live like we're doing right now. And we need to change the way we live and change the way we have our priorities both as an individual, as a community, as a business, as, as in government. We're thrilled that we've been able to work with the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. We're thrilled to be working with that organization. And I was actually one of the first people to join that organization because I think it's so important for it to be there. And Shagoon spoke at our conference over two years ago. And we made a, a commitment at that conference that we're going to do what we can to support the, all the work that the Black Economic Business Council of Massachusetts is doing and support what Shagoon is doing, because he's, I think, he's one of the most dynamic Black business leaders in the country. And those of us in Massachusetts are blessed to have him in this community. And the work he is doing is game-changing, absolutely game-changing in terms of the things we're trying to do. My personal commitment, the first commitment is that I'm going to do everything I can to, to help the Sustainable Business Network partner with every organization in Massachusetts to work toward a, an economy that is equitable, to work toward an, an economy and a culture that is fair and do all we can to dismantle racism and stop the institutional racism that exists. So those, that's, that's the, the, the overview. And specifically, I want to continue to work with Beckman, try to partner with them and do the things that they're doing, support their work, because that's so important. I'm working with the, the Cambridge Somerville Black Business Network, an organization that SBN has facilitated its founding and I want to continue to help that grow. And one of the parts we're doing is we're putting together a fund that will give micro loans to startup businesses run by black and brown people that will help fund people and businesses and getting their businesses going to the next level. There are micro loans between ten dollars and $50,000. And we're starting up a program to do that. And that's very important. And then thirdly, that I realize even more so that, that I need to be spending more time on me personally, looking at how I think and act and how so many times... It's based so much on as much as I, I'm working to work for racial equity, it's, I'm still part of this institutional racism because I'm part of this country. And to look for ways in which I can separate myself from that racism and do what I can in every part of my life to upgrade that. And one way is to do, do more business with, with businesses owned by Black people. I'm grateful that this movement has had a great awakening, and I'm doing everything I can to uplift and expand the awakening that's happened all across this country to make sure that this moment that we have to change the world moves from being a moment to a movement. Thanks for listening. You can find Shigun and Lori's bios and more information about Sustainable Business Network of Massachusetts, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, and the Common Good Collective in the show notes. This episode has been guest hosted by me, Manjulika Das, and produced by Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.